Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Simon, welcome to the show today, my friend. It's a pleasure to have you. How are you today? Thanks so much for having me on the show. We've been talking about this for a while, ever since you were a guest on my podcast. So I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you, Mr. Simon Cardinal. And I love being on your show, Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front. I loved it. And it was just so compelling to learn from you and to be able to dig through some stuff about public speaking when we were together and I was on your show. And it's a real honor to have you on the show today. And I want to dive right on in to a hard hitting question to kick us off. So Simon, I'd love to ask first, what is the hardest thing that you could share with us that you've had to overcome or endure in your life so far? Well, that's a really great question. I'm thinking of two different examples. One would be more of a tactical level. That was an event that I had to go through. And then maybe if I could, I'll go into another one as well. That was maybe a little more personal in its nature, if that's okay. I'd love to hear. Yeah, let's go deep down the rabbit hole, my friend. Love to hear about any and all of those things. So take it where you like to. Sounds great. So the first one is, I'll start by saying, so I'm a Canadian, three quick myths to dispel. No Canadian says a boot. I don't really like maple syrup. I don't know what the big deal is. And poutine tastes great, but it's not that big a deal. I'm just putting that out there. I'm just saying, if you do it though, it has to be with real cheese curds and not shredded cheese. Cause that's what ruins the whole thing. Anyways. Uh, so are you saying the greatest challenge is being a Canadian? Is that the biggest challenge in the world being a Canadian? Well, you know, sometimes, sometimes it's pretty tough being so sorry about everything. <laughs> oh man, I'm just teasing. Good, good. Thank you. It's all good. It's all good. So my first quicker story would be, I was in the military, the regular force for 26 years in the US military. It's called active service. So I started in the infantry for five years. And then after that, I went to the Air Force. We could talk about that later on. But for the purpose of this story, when I was in the infantry posted to the Eastern Canada region, the Maritimes, in 1998, there was an airline that crashed in Peggy's Cove, Nova Scotia, into the ocean there. And it was called Swiss Air Flight 111. And a couple of hundred people perished in that accident. And it happened to be that my infantry company, so we're talking about 100 soldiers, we were the quick reaction force and we had been sent to go to Peggy's Cove to do what was initially a rescue, but became very obvious very quickly that it was a recovery mission. So here I am, you know, we're talking to a guy who had joined the infantry four years earlier. So I'm 23 years old, almost 24. We're walking along a rocky shore with a couple of garbage bags. And this is going to sound a little gruesome, but it's just the fact of the matter because it was a hard thing. We were walking along the beach, picking up pieces of plane, pieces of personal effects, and to be completely honest, pieces of of individuals. And we had been given a couple of garbage bags, one bag for parts of individuals and one bag for aircraft parts because the plane had hit with such a velocity that it just completely obliterated the aircraft. So here, like you said, you're a 23 year old kid. You really don't know any better about anything in life. And we had been tasked. We did that for around a week. I can't exactly remember the amount of days. A week? 
Wow. Yeah. And uh, so that was a that was a tough thing to experience. And you're trying to wrap your mind around everything that's happening. You're like, wow, I'm actually in this moment. What am I doing? And I won't go into some of the actual specifics of what we experienced and what I saw. But that's the type of thing that reminds someone, even at a young age like that, that things can be gone. Your life can go away in the blink of an eye. And it can happen in a moment you don't realize what's happening. This plane had left from New York and it was going on an overseas flight. So people were just starting to settle into their long journey, thinking they're just going to have a nap, wake up, and visit loved ones or do whatever. And that was, of course, not the case. So that particular moment has stuck with me throughout my life in the sense that this was a thing that I had experienced. I didn't really know how to process this. And in the military back in the mid 90s, the concept of talking about mental health and mental well-being, it was just starting to emerge and just starting to be taken seriously. And so fortunately, they did. The forces had assigned us some counselors to help us get through that. But as one could imagine, the infantry is a very stereotypically macho organization especially back then, admitting that you were having some type of difficult thoughts or whatever was basically another way of admitting that you were weak. So most of us, in public anyways, didn't say anything. I know, and I'll be honest, I didn't say anything. I didn't want to be seen as someone who couldn't handle that type of thing. And even to this day, I can't, because the aircraft had been full of aviation fuel, which is basically kerosene, and that had washed up on the shore, I remember the smell of that, but I can't smell that anymore. That's just how I've processed that type of a thing. I'm very lucky. I don't experience any type of PTSD from that incident. And there are many folks that that's not the case. But that was a tough one for me. And that was an actual very physical, tactical experience that I went through. Did you have any idea at all when you were sent out there? Because this doesn't sound like something that to me, at least doesn't sound like something that when I'm joining the military to serve, it doesn't sound like this is something that's going to happen. This isn't really part of my purview, what's going to happen. And did you have any idea when you were sent out to the mission that this is what it was going to end up being? Oh, no, I had no idea. When most people join the forces, you realize that there's very likely going to be some type of domestic aid that's going to happen. In Canada, quite often, it's things like right now, it's wildfire support or in the winter, if there was a significant storm or hurricanes, those types of things, we get sent out to help with that. I remember that morning, I got up in the morning, I'm having my morning coffee and I'm watching on the news. Oh, well, that's a terrible thing that happened. I hope everything, because at the time when the news was out, they said they didn't know if there were any survivors. So I hope everyone's okay, knowing full well that wasn't the case. But you get the idea, not realizing that in just a few short hours, I would be walking along that beach with my platoon of fellow soldiers being a part of that. Now, in a weird type of way, it's also something I'm proud of in that I was able to be a part of an event that was able to help the survivors of the family, the, survivor, the family survivors get some type of closure. So that's one of the ways I'm able to try and reconcile the events in my mind by having helped bring items back to their family members. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that very challenging story from 1998. And I think you mentioned that there was another challenge, another something that you had on top of your mind. I'd love to explore that too. So thank you, Simon. Back to you. Yeah. So I appreciate letting me offer a second story. So this one's a little more recent. So back in 2019, I had started a master of arts degree in leadership at Royal Roads University in British Columbia, which is way out in the West Coast for us. And in this particular degree program, I do not have an undergrad. So the thing about this is here I am, I'm a master warrant officer. I'm the second highest rank you can achieve in the Royal Canadian Air Force as for a non-commissioned member. So I'm fairly accomplished. I'm in succession planning. I'm doing all the different things. You get the idea. But because I don't have an undergrad, I had just assumed like everyone that a master's degree was something that I could get down the road, but it was a long ways down. But it turns out that this particular program, you can apply and the board will sit and accept you or not based on your personal professional life experiences. So 
Once I found that out, I thought, oh, well, this might be an opportunity. I had applied and I got accepted. Great, right on. And completely straight up front, the main reason I was doing this was to help my military career, get the post-nominals, do all the stuff, get the extra points for further education. You get the idea. Now, this particular program, it's a two-year blended program, year one and year two. And in each year, there is a two-week in-person residency portion. So it's eight weeks and then the two weeks and then you go back home again. So anyways, I did the first eight weeks. Everything was great. And I'm not really paying a whole lot of attention. I'm typing out my notes. I'm doing my essays. Everything's fine. And around week five, I started having this realization that, holy wow, I'm about to go and start meeting these people that are, in my mind, significantly more accomplished and more deserving to be in this program than I am. So I started to impose upon myself some pretty significant imposter syndrome. And not even realizing that because in the military, I had never even heard that term before. So I didn't even know what was going on. So I was even more confused. I think it's important to put out there, and I was very fortunate for this, in my cohort of around 50 or so people, I was the only military member. And that was kind of rare for this particular program. But that actually ended up being a really great opportunity for me because I had a choice to make. I could either hide in my corner and not accept all these new ideas I was here learning about. Or I could open my mind to the different possibilities that were out there. I chose option B. That was great to do that. But the offshoot to that was all that really did was feed into my imposter syndrome that I did not deserve to be there. We're leading up, we're leading up, we're leading up. And I'm stressing myself out so much that I ended up giving myself the common cold because I just beat my own immune system up. So to that point, you get through it, you get through it. This was one of the most emotionally difficult things I had experienced in my life because it lasted for weeks. And it wasn't until I actually was physically sitting in the classroom on the first day and the director of the program gets up there. I'll never forget it. Kathy says to everyone, you have earned the right to be here. Every one of you had the same opportunities to get here or not. You earn the right to be here. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I do have the right to be sitting beside someone to the right who was an executive director for a large hospital. And the other person was a registrar at a university, a large university in Canada. I have the right to say things here and talk, but that imposter syndrome still stuck with me. So I got over it a little bit. I don't even like to use the term got over it a little bit. I reconciled with it a little bit. And then as the two weeks progressed, if I would offer an opinion or a thought, which I hadn't done up to that point, because I did, I really truly believe that my opinions weren't worthy or up to par as everyone else who had, in my opinion, better life experiences. It took me a long time to realize that my life experiences have just as much authority and value as everyone else's. They may be different, but I think that's what makes my opinions just as strong as everyone else's else's just as strong as yours just as strong as any other person who has an opinion and i'd like to say whether or not even you agree with that person's opinion that was a big learning moment for me i don't have to agree with someone to respect their opinion and that was a huge a huge shift for me i still think that i have imposter syndrome because there's moments when i'm going to meet people and i get very nervous and very shy and i'm what would be uh categorized as an extrovert I like to get out and I like to talk to people and stuff, but I still feel that if I make a choice in my mind that someone is better than me in whatever way that means, I feel that and I have to push through that to get through the hurdles and achieve whatever I need to do. It's tough. It's a challenge. I appreciate you sharing that with us today. It just shows that even highly successful, accomplished individuals such as yourself can still feel that. And you know, I've certainly felt that before in my world, the imposter syndrome. And it's something that, you know, as men who grew up in a culture, even back in the 90s, when you were 23 years of age, when you didn't feel compelled to share the emotion because you might be labeled as weak back then. I mean, over this journey, I mean, imposter syndrome is a real thing for strong men. It's for real. So I wanted to honor you for sharing that journey and letting everyone else out there know it's okay if you ever feel this way. 
Because I feel that way sometimes now. I mean, it still can show up in the most random of places and it's totally okay. I love that you accepted it and you've owned it. And now you're to a place and you're thinking where it's like other people's opinions. I mean, I don't agree with all of them, but I can accept it. I can listen to it. And so just a lot of, a lot of great stuff I hear there, That how you reconciled that within yourself, Simon. So that's fantastic to share. I mean, how are you doing with it right now? So every time I'm a guest on a show, I can feel it. I can feel it in my chest a little bit that, okay, well, am I really going to add value to this person's episode? Like, am I really the person that they should be talking to? I, I think a little bit of it is where it comes from is a little bit. I think a lot of times people will just be like, ah, it's just what I've done. This is just my experiences. But we're not looking at it from the outside as the individuals who are saying, wow, you, you've gone on, Simon, you've gone to three in, or two international deployments. You've done this. You've done these different things. For me, it's a lived moment where it's easy to downplay it. What I I believe is I don't think anyone ever gets rid of imposter syndrome. I feel that what we do is we learn to live with it and use it or not. What I mean by that is in this example of this interview we're doing right now, I was trying to log in about a half an hour earlier because I wanted to make sure I was ready for this episode, be ready for you because you're an accomplished podcaster, you're an accomplished professional in your field. And I want to make sure that I'm ready for that. And I feel that if I show up even a couple of minutes late, then it just makes myself look like I'm not worthy to be on your show. And of course, I ran into some technical difficulties, which, which made me very happy I started <laughs> earlier. <laughs> yes. yes. Like at 9.14, one minute before we're supposed to start downloading Google Chrome on my computer. Not a panic at all. But I got there. We're here. <laughs> you know, I, I, I resonate so much. And I appreciate you sharing it. And I think there is a lot of value in this because I know there are a lot of people that listen to this or high producing entrepreneurs or people that want to be entrepreneurs or people that want to be the best they can be as the best parent or the spouse. They want to achieve. They want to improve. And this imposter syndrome concept, I think it's real. I think that a lot of people recognize it and identify with it. And, you know, even something like uh, you say, what if I'm a minute or two late? What that can make me look? That is something that me, I would say that I'm a recovering perfectionist. And that was one of those perfectionist things that used to just get me, man. And when I was late by just a minute or two, I remember growing up and my mom and dad, my dad was military, my mom was an English teacher. And you know, she'd walk into a room, could talk to anybody, was a social butterfly. And my dad, he was kind of an introvert and a high-level leader of the military. So he kind of kept to himself and very, very masculine, didn't show the feelings as much. Had a good sense of humor, but you know, it was a very interesting environment that wherever we would go somewhere, I saw this dynamic where dad was stressed to the point of, you got to be early or be there on time. And mom would she'd be getting ready. And the time thing wasn't as pressing to her. So I grew up with this thought that, if I'm a minute late or two minutes late, how's that going to make me look? I mean, I, that was a major point where I was probably not a strong leader in my 20s and my first companies when I would be pushing people to be exactly on time or early. I'm not saying to everyone out there, be late. That's okay. Be lazy. Lax on your boundaries. I would be stressed internally about it and angry when people were late and really self-critical whenever I was late. So when you're talking about wanting to show up and do this, I appreciate that. And you reconciled this and you're able to live with it and own it. Now, Simon, I feel that this place around showing up a couple minutes later, after kids especially now, I'm okay with it. I'm going to go with the flow, man. It's cool. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to celebrate tardiness. At the same time, I'm not going to judge it and be all upset and angry about it. So Thank you for allowing me to go on the rabbit hole and talk for a minute there. I think that that imposter place, that place where we want to show up and we want it to be perfect. We want it to be a certain way. And if it isn't that, then maybe we feel like we're a little bit of an imposter or wasting someone's time or something. 
I just want to let you know and all of our listeners know, I totally resonate with that idea and it's going to be okay. That's eternal optimism, baby. That's eternal optimism. It's seeing the positive of the moment. What's the gift right now? Practicing patience. Maybe it gives us a bridge to start our conversation in this case. Anyways, any more thought on this imposter place or this place of wanting to show up in a certain way? I'll kick it back to you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'll start by saying thank you very much for that. And I completely agree with you. I, you know, these things are going to happen. I have a 21-year-old daughter who is late for everything. I used to get really, really, really frustrated with her. And then it took me a long time to realize it's not that big a deal. I often say things like there's a difference between negligence and accidents. Sometimes there's just no way around it. Like I got a new computer and I hadn't thought to put Google Chrome on my computer. So whatever, I had to figure that out. That happens. Those are just life things that are just going to happen and might make me a minute or two late. No big deal. Now, had I known not to do it and I just didn't do it because for whatever reason I decided I didn't need to and then that was the thing that made us late. That's different. That's not what happened in this case. <laughs> you know, <laughs> There's a difference in those two things. And so when I'm starting to feel myself get frustrated or anxious about any of those types of things, I ask myself that question. Is this something that just happens in life and, and you just, it's just the way it's going to be? And if the answer is yes, more often than not, that instantly calms me down and tones me down. And then I just, you know, a simple owning apology. Hey, I'm sorry. I'm a couple of minutes late. This is what happened. And as long as you own it, I think most people are good about it. And I really, truly believe, like I've read a lot of articles about imposter syndrome and different authors saying five ways to defeat imposter syndrome, five ways to get rid of this. I really don't think it ever goes away. I think we hold on to it in different ways. And if we can use it as a tool to go forward or recognize it and empower ourselves with it, then I think that's the ideal solution. That's what I think. Completely agree. Anything that might be an obstacle or a challenge, we learn from it. We use it as a tool. We view it as a gift that can help us to move forward. That's it. I know one of my dear friends listens to the show and I went camping with my good friend and their family, Tom. We went camping for the first weekend that I've ever been camping in my entire life. I'm 46. I've never slept in a tent until last weekend. <laughs> I and love it. I remember, man, Tom is an accomplished outdoorsman and he has stayed out. He's got kayaks. He's an outdoorsman. He can actually be on one of those shows like alone in the wilderness. He could probably do that and, and crush wow, it. Cool. And I've never slept in a tent. So we get there and the property is a safe place that we're going to camp. So it's good. It's, it's a comfortable place. We go down by the pond and we start to get the tents out. I know I've not ever set up a tent and I don't want to be the one that holds this entire operation back. And then my wife's over there looking and, you know, Tom's wife's looking, all the kids are looking like, what's going on over here? Why can't you get that tent up? These are thoughts going through my mind in advance. And at the same time, Simon, I haven't ever done it. I'm not going to stress over it. I'm going to enjoy this. And it took 44 minutes to get that first tent set up. 47, 47 minutes to get that first tent set up. <laughs> 44 to get the second tent. So it took me about an hour, a little bit over an hour and a half to get both tents set up. And I loved every minute of it. And Tom over here is setting up two tents and he's given me some advice on it. And his tents are more complex and cooler than mine. And it was just a really cool experience just to do all of that. I feel that what I'm trying to communicate is that there could have been a real chance there to show up with this imposter syndrome or this real self-critical lens. And why? Why do that when we're going to have a fun time camping together? We went and I know this is my first time. I'm not going to be great at this most likely. So have fun and embrace it and enjoy it. That's the message here. I'm landing the plane now. That's the message to embrace and enjoy these new experiences and learn from them, not to stress and be all mad and upset about it. 
So that's the book into that part of it, I suppose. Let's keep moving. Was there a moment in your career, Simon, when you decided that being in the armed forces, this is the place that I need to be? And I'd love to ask about that, why you chose that, where you were with that, and then we'll move forward to what you're doing now. But why the armed forces and why has that been so important to you in your life? Yeah, well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak about that. So I was very fortunate as a kid, like my dad was in the military as well. And he was always in the Air Force and he was in a trade called refrigeration and maintenance technician. So we were posted all throughout Canada, mostly Western Canada. And I remember always thinking, wow, he's doing something important. I loved watching him come home in his uniform. And I thought, wow, he's doing something that that matters. And we were in some really fun, interesting postings and different things. And I loved the lifestyle of moving around every couple of years, all those different things. It's definitely not for everyone. But I knew, okay, that's the thing. If I'm going to have a career, then I wanted it to matter at a level that was personal to me. And I'm not suggesting that it's something else for anyone else. For me, the opportunity to join the forces was a way to be able to have a career and serve others. That has always really resonated with me. And I think it's partly because on both sides of my family, there's multiple generations of people that served in the military throughout a couple of wars. And then seeing my dad be able to do that. So I always knew I wanted to join the military. The irony of that is when I was a teenager, I thought I knew everything about everything. I was a little punk. No, I'm okay no. with admitting that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so uh, I was in Air Cadets, which is a program for youth in Canada. And I just assumed that was going to be enough. So I, when I went to go apply for the military, they actually, the recruiter, I'm looking at the recruiter. I just assumed I was going to get in. And the recruiters, I'm watching go through my file and his brow's getting a little furrower because each second goes by. And he looks at he looks up at me and I'm expecting him to shake my hand and say, welcome to the military, Mr. Cardinal. And he looks at me and says, Mr. Cardinal, you are an immature little twerp. He did not use the word twerp. And uh, it'll be a very long time before I allow you into my military. You need to do this laundry list of things before we'll even consider processing your application. And it was wow. a list of significant wow. things like go back to high. I knew I needed high school to at least keep my options in life, but I barely graduated. I got the speech from all of my different teachers. Simon, you're so much more capable than what you're putting the effort into. You know, That type of speech, I got that from all of them. So I graduated high school, but the grades weren't really amazing. So I had to go back and get better grades. I had to get my driver's license again and not have it suspended for speeding or driving like an idiot, which was happening quite often. I needed to get a job and hold said job because amazingly, in every job that I worked, I was the smartest person in that group. And if you asked me, I would give you every opportunity to tell you that. So, of course, if you're the only jerk in a group, Mm. every place you go, (laughs) what are the odds are if everyone around you are jerks? In every place you go, what are the odds are that you're not the jerk? I was the jerk. So you get the idea. And then there's a couple other things I had to go and do as well, but those were the main things. So the point of that is I took away from that opportunity, this naval lieutenant and saying this, hey, someone stood up to me and finally said, no, you're not as amazing as you think you are. And that moment really, really stuck with me. It's like, yes, this is where I need to be because people are going to hold me accountable for my actions or lack of actions one way or the other. And then I went for that. I took that and it took me a year and a half, but I was able to eventually get into the forces and away I went. And then, you know, flash forward, here we are 27 years later, a lot more gray hair. I like to think that I'm a lot more humble and a little bit more mature. It depends who you ask, of course. But yeah, so those types of moments that all that did was really make me want to be able to get into this type of profession. It's had its challenges, but it's had its moments that I wouldn't trade for anything in the world. I'm going to ask you about the moments now. I'm going to ask you about, you said there's some moments you wouldn't trade. Like what's a moment that really connects with you in the heart that just makes you love what you do and fuels your engine, Simon? 
Yeah, so I was very fortunate where I was able to be involved with a few domestic operations where we went and helped fellow Canadians. In the Ontario, Quebec region, again, back in 1998, we suffered a very significant ice storm that completely shut down the entire province for a few weeks. So we got sent out to go and help people. So we were sent into this little tiny town called Lodge Guardian Angel to help these folks get through this challenging time. And it involved things like providing security, bringing firewood, making sure people were safe, all these different types of things. So those moments where you're able to actually do things and help fellow Canadians, that sticks with you. I also had opportunities to go on to international deployments where I was able to help other people who just wanted to live their lives. I went to Bosnia in 1999. Oof. Yeah, and it was, Oof, it was things man. were fortunately not as hectic as they were in the early 90s, but there were still things that were happening. And I remember we did this one vehicle patrol and we went into this literally in the bottom of this valley. And the only things separating these two villages of different ethnic backgrounds was the road. And the two sides didn't like each other. We were in there. We were just going down to say, hey, you know, what's going on? We're talking to the two different sides as an impartial observer in a lot of cases. But also we were there to peacemake. So to ensure these folks weren't harming each other. Speaking of them, saying, I just want to live my life. You know, I don't necessarily hate the person on the other side of the road, but I certainly don't like them. And we can get into a whole sidebar about why that was the case, but it was interesting to be able to go and say, okay, so are we making a difference here? Are we actually helping it so that you can just go live your life and farm the land? And yeah, he's like, it was it happened to be a male at the time. He's like, yeah, I'm able to do that. The only caveat to that was about half of his farmland had been mined with anti-personnel and anti-tank mines years earlier by uh, one of the warring factions that had come through. But when we found that out, we were actually able to bring in our equipment that gets rid of these types of things. And so within a year, this gentleman was able to have all of his farm farmland and start producing and sustaining for himself. And what happened was all of the villagers got together and saw that Canada was here to help. And now those two separate villages became one village because people were there to help. And I was able to be a part of that in my own wow. small way. So, yeah, I mean, that really is. And I want to start to transition into your show and talk about trench leadership. To me, you just described leadership from the front to a T. You've got two sets of people that are separated by a road, literally, and they don't like each other. And you get right in the middle of that and lead from the front to do something to help bring them together. To me, that really sounds like trench leadership. It sounds like leading from the front. So I'd love to start to transition into why you started this podcast, Trench Leadership, and talk a little bit about what that means to you, Simon. Yeah, well, thanks so much for that. So if you remember earlier, I was speaking about the Master of Arts in Leadership degree. So that is a big part of why the podcast exists. So as I'm progressing through the degree program, I'm starting to get near the end of it. And in this particular program, we had to write a paper and we also had to provide a project. In this case, they call it an engaged learning project. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And most often people drafted or they created some type of infographic and that was fine, uh, but it's not really my style. And I kind of wanted to do something different. And at the same time that was happening, I started thinking to myself, well, what am I going to do with this information I've been stuffing into my mind for the past two years? How am I going to use this to help? And at the same time, throughout the entire two years of the program, one of the things I came across was, I remember the first thing we started learning about was systems thinking. As a senior non-commissioned member in the Canadian Royal Canadian Air Force, my job has shifted from a tactical level to an institutional slash strategic level where my role is to advise commanders on policies and give them generic and general advice on how we might want to proceed with a decision. But if I haven't received that knowledge, that institutional level understanding of things, how can I effectively do that? So that's the type of thing that kept coming up to me thinking to myself, 
gee, I sure wish I'd heard about systems thinking 15 years ago when I was a brand new master corporal or whatever. And I'm not suggesting graduate level understanding of these things, but at least knowing they exist so that I can go out and find more information about them. And that kept happening time and time again throughout the program. So here I am, I'm trying to figure out how to write my paper and how I'm going to do this project. What happened was I said, I wonder if I could maybe write a three-part podcast mini-series, which detailed all the highlighted points of my research paper, because my research paper was focusing on senior non-commissioned members and that executive command team, which education to provide the senior NCMs to help them be more effective. And I knew the paper and everything was going to land on the desk of a bunch of generals and high-ranking senior NCMs, and the last thing they needed was another briefing note. So the hope was that these officers and senior NCMs would plug this podcast in when they were on the treadmill or maybe out in a walk or something, and having a different way of hearing it. So I created the three-part series. Turns out that I used my MacBook Air. It, it sounded pretty good, all things considered, considering I don't have any of that background. But then I kept coming back to, well, what's next? How do I use this next? And I knew I was going to be retiring from the military. I knew I needed to make a change and look at other things in my life. So I was out for a run, and it just I said, well, I should totally make a podcast about those things that I hadn't heard, because one of the research points I had come across was that leaders traditionally in civilian and any different type of organization traditionally don't receive formalized leadership training until they're 45 to 47 years old, which generally means wow. 12 to 17. Yeah, which generally means 12 to 15 years inside their leadership or career journey. So that's too late because usually that's the early senior management levels. You know, habits have been formed by then. So I was thinking, well, maybe this might be the opportunity to speak to, I don't know how you want to term it, emerging leaders. Where are they going to go to get that information? Because more often than not, in the podcasts I had listened to, the leadership podcast, there was a lot of talk about CEOs or C-suite folks that if you want to do this, be in charge of 50,000 people, this is what you need to do. Great information. But again, that's not helping that leader who is in there enacting the decisions that have been made from the C-suite level and made their way all the way down to the person that's physically going to push that information and that decision out. That ultimately is my long-winded Simon story about how Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front came about. The name is a bit of an homage to my military career and understanding that leading, especially in the first few years, it's bloody, it's challenging, it's tough. And quite often trench warfare was confusing. And more often than not, it was super, super boring. <laughs> and, and then and then something would happen and there was an attack or there was a battle and then there was confusion and chaos, rain for a couple of days or maybe a week or two, and then nothing. And then boring, 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 and then chaos and chaos and chaos. And that is more often than not what the first few levels of leadership is in the military anyways. Yeah, I would say in the civilian world as well, I remember and I hit the lottery with leadership because from a very young age in business, I learned from really strong leaders that really built a solid foundation. I imagine like so many leaders that I see out there nowadays, I don't know where they got their leadership training from. And you say 45 to 47 years of age might be the time when people start getting to senior management. They never had any leadership training, like formalized program. Yeah, I see that out there all the time. It makes me wonder how some people even do survive as leaders. So yeah, I wonder if you could take us back to something you may have seen. You don't need to name names necessarily, but take us back to an example of some leadership faux pas, or maybe just one example of a, a leadership misnomer or a faux pas that people may not know about that would be helpful for you know, people to learn from someone who has this experience. That's a great question. So when I think of those types of things, the one thing I like to remind folks about is leaders are being judged on everything you're saying and doing at all times, always. 
It doesn't matter if you're running a formal meeting. It doesn't matter if you're at some type of retreat. It doesn't matter that if you're out taking everyone out, just going to a restaurant on a Friday afternoon, what you're saying and doing, how you're sitting, when you're speaking, when you're not speaking, everything is being judged either consciously by your teammates or not. The point is, as the leader, everything you're saying is doing is being judged. And I knew that going through my military career, but I think of when I was a sergeant, I was teaching basic training and I was the platoon commander for a platoon in basic training. If someone had failed some type of portion of the training, they would come to our platoon. We would figure out what the challenge was and help that person resolve that and then get them back onto basic training on another course to succeed and go on with their career. I remember as a sergeant at that time, at that particular location, being a sergeant was a very big deal. You were right in there and it was the rank. And I remember I'm talking to these 80 or 90 candidates. In the beginning, I was all full of energy and I didn't even realize it. But after about a year and a half, I was starting to get kind of bitter with things that were happening around me. What I didn't notice was that my tone changed how I was standing changed. Quite often I would be standing evenly on my hips and stuff like that. And my hands would be on my shoulders and I'd be kind of doing that bit of that power pose thing. And eventually over time, what would happen is I'd be speaking with people and I would be crossing my arms and I would be a lot more cross or short with candidates when I'm speaking with them. And some of these candidates had been there for months to figure out what the challenges were. And I didn't realize it, but that was having an effect on the morale inside this platoon. And it was only until a very brave candidate pulled me aside one day and said, Sergeant Cardinal, are you okay? Is there something going on here? And I immediately gave them some not so great words to how dare you speak to a sergeant that way, blah, 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 blah. And they continued, this person was a little bit older. So they had played some life games in the past. And they said, no, you know, there's something wrong here. I've been here a while and, and there's something wrong. I just want to know if you're okay. Maybe you go talk to someone. And I was like, wow. I immediately brushed them off. But later in that day, when I had some time to chew on that a bit, I realized that, okay, maybe there's something here. And I went back and I spoke to the person. So how are you noticing these things? Because for me, I don't see anything different. They said, no, no, how you're talking to us has changed, how your tone has changed, how you're standing, all of these different things. And I spoke to a few other candidates that I trusted would be honest with me. They all said the exact same thing. And I didn't preamble with like, have you noticed, have I been standing differently? I said, hey, have you noticed any differences in all of the platoon staff? I didn't try to just narrow it down on me. And they all said the same thing. So that was a notice for me to say, okay, what I'm saying and doing matters, how I'm saying doing matters, and when I'm doing it. And what I realized was all of that, all the time. As a leader, my full power would be to say, if you don't think what you're doing, if you ask yourself what I'm doing, would I be embarrassed by this or would I not want my leader to do that? That's the faux pas. Pay attention to yourself and ask yourself those questions. And that's how I personally try and do things. If I'm doing something and I think to myself, this isn't how what I would want my leader to be doing, then that's very likely it's not what your direct reports are going to want to see or hear. I love that. I'm in leadership nerd heaven right now because I'd like to dive into everything you just shared and examine the different levels of leadership. We just saw so many different levels of it right there. And I would start with you shared the premise that leaders are always being judged. They're always in the spotlight. People have their eyes on. And then from there, the first example might be that, that particular person had the courage to offer you some feedback in the face of you at that time, putting it right back at them. How dare you? And then you later had the courage to come back and ask for some feedback from people you felt would be honest with you. So I love that. Also, you had the self-awareness to pause and reflect and to assess and then feel that it's worthy to go and ask for that feedback. So that takes a, a strong leader to do that. 
now, here we are X number of years later, you're sharing this lesson, which is, I feel is another example of strong leadership, to share the lessons of our mistakes or of the things that were bumps in the road that we learned from. So your story was full of several levels of leadership from you and from the prospect or the person that was applying the candidate. So I wanted to honor you for that. I think that was an example of leadership right there. Everything you just did was an example of sharing leadership notes, little tidbits. I hope that the listeners' ears and antennas are up because you just gave us a little masterclass prelude there to leadership. Anything you want to add to that or build on that or recognize about these different levels of leadership that you've just exemplified in the story. Yeah, well, I think for me, when I went through those things, I remember thinking to myself, said, okay, right on, I got this. I'm doing a good job. And then about two or three weeks later, I settled back into my routines and different things again at work. Things kind of settled down. And by my nature, I'm just a sarcastic type of person. I was making little sarcastic jokes. And in my mind, I think everyone just knows I'm just kidding. But again, not cluing in that the influence I had, the position I held, that influence matters. And understanding the audience that I'm surrounded in. These are very influential, young-ish, depending on the age they joined the military, people who know really nothing about the military other than what they may have experienced through life or movies or, or video games or something. What I'd noticed was because of the conversations I'd had earlier, I was a little more aware of paying attention to what I was saying and doing and paying attention to the reactions of people when I was saying and doing what I was doing, how I was doing it. And so I've learned that my sarcasm can be a powerful tool when it's in the right context and the right audience. So I take a little bit of a moment to think about that. And I'd also like to point out, I still make mistakes. Like I certainly didn't capture this leadership knowledge and then all of a sudden it's a perfect nugget and a piece of gold. I put it aside and I've got it. I'm constantly having to check myself. And even still years later, that was over a decade ago and I'm still having to go and say, okay, when I'm in front of groups, am I, how am I standing? Does it make sense for the audience I'm with? And, and ask those things. So the, the practical to do advice, if someone's thinking, okay, great, thanks for this information. So I'm, but how do I use this? How do I apply this? What I do, and it's only what my thing, I would recommend trying this out, go to the internet, whatever. But what I find is I will actually, when I'm getting ready to stand in front of a group, I'll ask myself some questions. Sometimes I'll even write them out. What is the group? What is my role with the group? What am I thinking about? What matters here? And the big one I ask is, what's the message I'm trying to convey? If I could provide an example of something I went through yesterday, would that be all right? I'd love to hear it. Yes. Okay. So I am the squadron warrant officer at 412 Squadron. It's a Royal Canadian Air Force Squadron here in Ottawa. We had what's called a ground training day. So it's an event where we, all the squadron members get together and we talk about all kinds of different things. My role is to advise the commanding officer on all things military and different types of things like that and different policies and whatnot. So it came my turn to get up and deliver my portion of the speeches. So I purposely created my talking points in such a way where the ones that were more military-esque in their nature, talking about the upcoming military policies or different performance management things that were happening, those types of points, I specifically spoke in a more directive, transactional manner. My stand, my stance in that way occurred that I had one hand on my hip, my other hand was doing the five-finger laser chop type thing because I was getting specific points across because as the squadron warrant officer, my job is to get those points across. And some of them were you know, military-esque in their nature, and that's just the way they needed to go. But then later on with my talking points, we started talking about the squadron fund or the social fund or whatever, whatever the other terms might be, and how we're gearing up for a family day later in the year and different things that we want to do to create a larger 
larger sense of camaraderie and a sense of family and community inside the squadron. So my tone completely changed. Everything very much softened. I started using both my hands flying around a little bit. Instead of saying I, a lot of the times, I would say we. And I actually made the point of saying, hey, listen, we're going to be creating this family day event. These are the ideas we've got. But as a reminder, this isn't my squadron. This is not the commanding officer's squadron. This is our squadron and this is our idea. So what do we want to do together? I don't know what I don't know. So we're going to create a survey and we'll get that out there to everyone and then provide us with the information. If you don't give me any information, then we're going to do what I want to do. But with that in mind, we'll get this information. We'll go together. So I really think that as a leader, it's about building a community. It's about creating that sense of togetherness in a way that feels authentic and genuine, because that long term is what will build trust and buy in and all the very important things that leaders need to create in in their sphere. Yeah, I love the way that you are intentional around you're delivering the military policy message and it's more direct and you're making the point with the chop. And when it's all about the camaraderie and the community building part of it, you soften up and you make it more communal, you make it more open and inviting. I mean, that's something in itself that I don't think unless you practice this, that a lot of leaders understand how to do real time when they're speaking. So kudos to you for that. I'd love to go a little deeper on this building community before we wrap up, Simon, because I know this is one of your strengths and something that you're passionate about. What does that mean to you and how might you go about doing that, this concept of building community? I love talking about communities. I think that as a leader, there is nothing more important or more valuable than the leader's role to be a community builder. And I'd like to start by saying that communities are different than teams. We can have multiple teams inside one community. The community is the group of the collection of of individuals coming together to do something, but not the actual tactical work of it. So an example I like to use is inside the military, in the infantry, we have the battalion. So roughly 11 to 1200 people. There's rifle companies inside of that. And each one of those is their own team. And they have platoons and then sections, but the entire community rallies together. Probably a better example of that would be, so I was in the Royal Canadian Regiment and as I always love to say, is the best regiment in the Canadian Armed Forces because I'm very proud to be there. My community has built that. We happen to be the oldest regiment in the country. And of course, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry or the Royal Van Du Regiment, they're going to say they're the best because their community has created that sense of camaraderie to bring everyone together to do that. And then inside the companies, well, I was in Juliet Company. Well, of course, as far as I was concerned, we were the best company. Didn't matter if we were performing the best. We were, but that's not the point. (laughs) You know, those different types of things came together. And it's no different inside an organization where small teams, especially at the tactical level, three to five, maybe seven people, those teams are together, but it's the organization that builds the community that is going to give that team the opportunity to maybe have more latitude to go and succeed and do whatever it is they need to do. And it's the leader's role to have the sense of when and how to build a community and why it's so important. Mm, leader's role to build that. And when you're sharing the story, I'm relating it to the communities I'm a part of, the teams I'm a part of. I'm a part of a group called the Front Row Dads, of which one particular part of it, there's the entire community of all the dads that are involved, the, the different teams, I would say there's like the VIP group that you know goes to the retreats. And I'm a part of that. And inside of that specific group, we do have what we call bands. My band is seven total dads. 
Now that's our inner team that we have our call. We connect, we work on being better dads, husbands, and showing up as leaders. But overall, we're serving the same mission as to be the best dads that we can be in the community of the Front Row Dads. So it's really resonating what you're sharing. Is there, I guess, a final tip or something that you might share? Let's say I'm a leader and let's say I'm in charge of my company. Let's just say I've got 50 people in my company. What might be a tip or something you might share about building my culture, my community inside of my organization, Simon? I think from my experiences, the one thing I would offer is that nothing in leadership is one and done. It is impossible. And I really don't like the word impossible, but I would say that it is virtually impossible to say, I did this leadership thing. I have built morale. I'm done. Next. I am the leader and I've built community. Community is built. Move on. Next. We are always, we're stewards of the individuals we're fortunate enough to be able to look after, and we're stewards of the community and the team that's available to us. So it's on our responsibility and our shoulders to constantly look at how things are evolving, get the pulse and pay attention to that and understand why things are going good and maybe not so good. And if they're not, pay attention to that. And if they are, pay attention to that. And if you're not sure, pay attention to that because that's also a big thing. And I guess in general, I'm saying try your very best to pay attention to everything. Always have your head up, looking around and taking it all in because that is the most important thing a leader can do. Hey, that's great advice because I see a lot of leaders that get so stuck in the weeds on their own job and they say, hey, everyone just go do your jobs and let everyone go off and do it as if every single person is going to have the same level of focus and do the one thing. And many times the leaders may not even tell others what the one thing is and everyone's kind of doing a little bit of everyone's stuff. And before you know it, the leader's not setting the direction they're simply yelling and frustrated at people because they're not doing their job. Well, you never made it clear what the job is because you're always over there unavailable. Uh, no, your eyes aren't up and looking and watching, as you say. So I appreciate that tip. Simon, you've given us some great nuggets of leadership today, and you've shared some big challenges that you've overcome. So we honor and appreciate you for sharing, my friend. It's been great. Uh, how do we find out more about you and your podcast? Like, Where do we go to learn more, Simon? Well, so I have a few different ways. The first one would be you could go to the website, trenchleadership.ca. I'm also very active with LinkedIn for that. And that's Trench Leadership, a podcast from the front. You could also find myself, Simon Cardinal on there. I'm the only Cardinal spelled K-A-R-D-Y-N-A-L. So that's helpful. I also have Facebook. I don't use that as much. There's Twitter and Instagram, all of those. Those will be available if anyone's interested. I would recommend but if someone really wants to have a conversation with me or really connect, you can just email me at simonk at trenchleadership.ca. And of course, the podcast is available wherever anyone listens to their podcasts. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, Simon. Well, we have now advanced to the lightning round of questions to wrap things up today. So uh, ding, ding, ding. Here we go. I'd like to invite you to share your thoughts on this. The name of this podcast is the Eternal Optimist Podcast. When I say Eternal Optimist, what does that mean to you? It means to someone that's always looking. They're always looking around, looking for that next thing, looking for the benefits and the disadvantages and the challenges and trying to find ways, if they see a challenge, how they're able to turn that into an optimistic moment. It's about questioning. Man, uh, this has got to be up there. And the top of the class answers. I love that answer. Thank you. That was phenomenal. Let's go to uh, a resource, if we may. If there's one or two books or periodicals, just something that you might read that has impacted your life, what might that be for you, Simon? 
Well, one of them would be uh, Peter Sengay's The Fifth Discipline. He talks about, he is considered the father of systems thinking. And the systems thinking, the overarching idea is that everything is connected. We've heard that before. Most people have heard the analogy of the butterfly flaps its wings on the other side of the planet, causes a tsunami on the other side. Systems thinking, once you start looking around and seeing how things are connected in ways that are seemingly unconnected, you can't stop seeing that. It's amazing how that affects a leader's ability to make and understand their long-term and short-term practical, tactical leadership choices. Thank you. The fifth discipline. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'll wrap it up with this. Is there a movie or a song that really inspires you and just gets you into this positive flow? What might that movie or song be for you, Simon? You know, that's a good question. There are a lot of movies out there that really inspire me for various reasons. That's a tough one. And the irony is I ask this in my lightning round all the time. So, ah. <laughs> so I guess it kind of depends on the mood I'm in. If I'm thinking about, like, if I need something that's going to cheer me up or enlighten me, there's a few different comedy movies out there that exist that are always just in the back of my mind that always just kind of help me reset myself. So there's a movie uh-huh. with Keanu Reeves called The Replacements. It hasn't done a great job of withstanding <laughs> the test of time yes um in a lot of ways but you know if i just need something where i can turn my brain off and go from there and i really appreciated some of the leadership lessons in there some of them are maybe a little archaic now but some of them in there are really great for just understanding what's going on and just being able to turn my mind off because i think that's important too as a leader to know when it's time to take a step back and just take a moment for yourself it's tough stuff i love it and the replacements is that the one where they fill the car full of popcorn they fill keanu's car full of popcorn or am i thinking of necessary roughness with scott bacula even earlier in time <laughs> i think that's the one you're thinking of yes yeah, so the replacements keanu reeves is a washed up college football player in the u.s yes and gene yes. hackman yeah and then the nfl is about to go they go on strike so gene hackman has been tasked to bring in a bunch of players that have been discarded for various reasons and create a team. They just need to win three out of five games to get to the playoffs. And then, of course, there's all kinds of hijinks ensue. There's actually quite a few big name people in that movie. John Favreau's in there, Gene Hackman, Keanu Reeves, of course. There's a few others in there. It's surprising. It's a good one just to kind of like, oh, okay, a little silly humor and then take from it what you will. I love you have a go-to movie to laugh to. Mine's Caddyshack. It always gets me into a good place because I'm a golf nerd, man. So, cool. Well, Simon, this has been amazing. Just thanks so much. It's been great having you today. And look for the Trench Leadership Podcast from the front, dear listeners. You know, check that out and follow Simon. Go connect with him on LinkedIn. Thanks so much, Simon, for showing up today. We appreciate your authenticity and leadership from the front, my friend. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure being on your show. Mm-hmm.